three judges scoring this bout 39 to 37 for your winner by unanimous decision. And now undefeated in his first professional career, Patricio Cacahuate Manuel. I think if people knew what it took to get to this moment, it's been almost two years since I've been in the ring. And I just gotta say, my opponent, my hat's off to him. He came there to fight. He was fighting me the whole time. He fought me as a man, and I have so much respect for him. Um, I hear some fans aren't happy. It's okay, I'll be back. I'll make you happy then. December 2018, transgender sport history made as Patricio Manuel breaks through. The first transgender man to card a professional boxing win. And he hasn't stopped training, looking for fight number two. Hello again, everybody. I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb, and this is the Transporter Room, the intersection of sports, transness, sci-fi, gaming, all things nerd and geek, and a lot of other stuff. And Patricio Manuel will join us on the podcast, catching up on the fight game, Trans Awareness Week, and why a special pair of gloves matter. That's coming up a little later on. But first, some news and notes this week, beginning with... The aftermath of campaign 2022. What's out? Election deniers, they're out. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, no. Still Minority Leader. But what's in? A slightly misguided notion that LGBTQ hysteria was a losing bet. Now that doesn't mean that I'm thinking that was overplayed and it wasn't a losing bet because in many ways it was. Sports Kiki host and good friend Alex Rimmer was right on this one. But given that it's Trans Awareness Week, I got to make some people aware of something. Certain arch transphobes and a number of other candidates who back them up are back on the case again. Of course, Ron DeSantis, re-elected. Greg Abbott, re-elected. And just a note to people, you know what? Trans Awareness Week. That always struck me as kind of odd for one reason, because the people that don't like us, they are aware that we're here. Case in point, let's take a look at Virginia. They just released during their lame duck legislative session, HB 1387. Now, this bill would ban transgender people from sports that match their gender identity, and it requires a physical examination to include an examination of, quote, biological sex. I think you all know what that means. We don't, we don't give a damn. We'll inspect all your genitals. We'll inspect all your genitals. We'll inspect all your genitals. We don't give a damn. We'll inspect all your genitals. We're from Ohio. Meanwhile, in and speaking of Ohio, House Bill 454 is facing a hearing right now as we speak, as a matter of fact. The State Board of Education is meeting, and they're going to have a committee hearing on what they call HB 454, called the, quote, Save Adolescents from Experimentation Act. It is a ban on affirming health care. And once again, just a note to those who claim not to know, affirming health care for trans youth is not experimental. Purity blockers have been used for about 50 years. We're not talking about hormones and we're certainly not talking about surgeries. Don't fall for the okie doke on this is what I'm saying. 
Also, Trans Day of Remembrance, Sunday, November 20th, happens to fall on the same day that we open FIFA World Cup 2022 over in Qatar. Now, remember what Qatar's foreign minister said about the criticism his country's taking, because after all, it's illegal to be gay in Qatar. There is a lot of people from around the world, they are seeing this as just a sense of arrogancy. A sense of people who cannot accept a small country in the Middle East has won uh, uh, the bid to host the World Cup. Preaching from a distance is not a solution. Boyc calling to boycott the World Cup or who are not coming to the World Cup, it's their decision at the end of the day. We always say that, you know, sports should not never be politicized. What kind of message they are sending for their own public? If they are just criticizing and preaching from a distance, what about their own problems within their countries? Now, with that in mind, the U.S. men's national team and U.S. soccer decided they're going to take a little bit of a stand. They're going to use a special rainbow logo of the U.S. soccer and U.S. national team shield at all the team-managed facilities as a symbol of inclusion while they're over at the FIFA World Cup. Now, to quote the headline in Sid Ziegler's article in Outsports, USMNT uses rainbow logo at World Cup as a big middle finger to Qatar and FIFA. Now, Sid, I love you, but no. I don't think this is a big middle finger. I don't think this is even a boy by wave. In some ways, this is the men's national team in U.S. soccer doing what some may call virtue signaling. Now, I hate that term, and I don't agree that it's virtue signaling. But I am going to say something. I think on the surface, this is cool. But that's just it. It's surface. This is, and in some ways, this goes with some things I've talked about in recent weeks about Qatar. I, I know what the laws over there are. I get it. I understand it. I think it's heinous. I think it's cruel. But also, in saying that, again, it we have to say again, Western countries are so quick to wag the finger at the Middle East, at Russia, at China, at Iran, and at a lot of what we call the Global South. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't spread a light on those issues. However, to U.S. soccer and to the men's national team, if you really want to make a difference, as you just heard a minute ago when we were going through some of those bills, there's plenty here in this country that would keep you busy and that could use your attention. You know, things that the U.S. women's national team would do. Because say whatever you want about the women's national team, Megan Rapinoe and the girls speak out. They do, and they just don't speak out on things over there. They speak out on things right here at home. U.S. soccer, you really want to do something? You know, you're the co-host of the World Cup in 2026 along with Canada and Mexico. There's 11 American cities that are going to host games. Four of those cities are in states that have either passed anti-LGBTQ and especially anti-trans legislation or those things are pending in their legislatures. So you really want to do something, I'll tell you what you do. 
I want the head of U.S. soccer, and I want the coach of the national team and the players, I want them to call Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, recently reelected Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, and let him know that anti-trans legislation that you're talking about, um, if you pass it, Atlanta's not hosting a game in 2026, just so you know. And while you're at it, make that call to Greg Abbott. Greg, if you don't lay off affirming fam families of trans youth, if you don't reverse all that stuff you've been passing to ride down on trans people, Dallas and Houston are slated to host games. We'll move those to Hartford and Minneapolis. Affirming areas. And especially place a call to a certain Mr. DeSantis in Florida and let him know that, you know what, um, Miami's hosting some games. Miami has a lot of soccer fans. It'd be a shame to pull those games, but you know what? We'll have no problem moving them to San Diego unless you quit picking on the trans kids. Quit, quit trying to take away affirming health care. Quit banning transgender student-athletes from school sports. And get rid of that don't-say-gay nonsense. You see, if you really want to make a mark about those rainbows, and just a reminder, that's only at the team facilities in the practice field. The players can't wear them on the field. It's a FIFA regulation. And you know what? That's FIFA's regulation. There are, there are other teams that are that are trying to do some things and want to do some things, and FIFA kind of nixed it, but some of the captains of some of the European sides are going to wear rainbow armbands anyway, and I like to see it. But U.S. soccer, you really want to make a mark? I got an idea. That rainbow shield looks kind of cool. Put it on your jerseys when you're playing, say, a CONCACAF Gold Cup, Cup or a friendly or a CONCACAF qualifying match in Miami or Dallas or Columbus, Ohio. I want to see you speaking out. And not just esoteric general, we support all people, love is love. No. I want to see some San Diego loyal type speaking out. I will speak. I will act. And you know what? You got a chance to do it right now. Because you see, I found out from Alejandra Caraballo over at Hartford Law School. And by the way, she's not just an instructor. She's a practicing attorney that Texas has introduced a different bill that would criminally charge venues that have drag shows with a class A misdemeanor. I mean, that's like felony light if you're scoring at home, if they permit minors to enter at any time. Now, the bill defines drag as essentially any trans person performing. It says right here, a drag performance in the bill, I'm reading the text of the bill here, means a performance in which a performer exhibits a gender identity that is different than the performer's gender assigned at birth using clothing, makeup, or other physical markers and sings, lip syncs, dances, or otherwise performs before an audience for entertainment. So in other words, technically, if I was doing this podcast at, say, some public venue in the state of Texas and I just sang and I'm a trans person, I'm considered a, it's considered a drag performance. By the way, all this stuff that I'm telling you, it's going to be in the liner notes. I'm also going to link the full thread, Alejandro's full thread, and you can read it for yourself. Because you need to read this stuff. This is, this is, this is off the chain. Ale one of the tweets that's in the thread, I'm going to, like, again, I'm going to put the whole thread. Alejandro writes, 
If a coffee shop hosts a drag event, then it would be classified as, quote, sexually oriented business and cannot allow minors to enter it again, and the state would impose a $5 fee on all customers. This, in effect, bans all drag by making it impossible to host anywhere. This is how far some people are willing to go. And I know there's going to be, again, there's going to be one of you say, well, well, Carly's an apologist for those people over there. And they throw people over out of, they throw people out of buildings, Carly, just for being gay. Don't you care about that? Of course. But two things. Number one, there are certain people in this country who will do the same thing that you are wagging your finger as a scold and with shame about what's going on over there. Meanwhile, there are people who are all over the Middle East who are boots on the ground, who are fighting the fights for LGBTQ rights. And I'm telling you, the, there's a way you can support them. And how do you do it? By getting things right here at home and you set the example. We can wag our finger all we want, but how can, for example, the British government, who claims to be so concerned about their LGBTQ citizens, the Home Office just put out a travel advisory basically saying, if you go to Qatar, you're on your own. We're not helping you, but don't. if you do go over there, don't be gay, huh? I find it interesting that they're concerned about their citizen safety going to the World Cup when they don't seem to be that concerned about LGBTQ people being safe in Britain, trans people in particular. Because after all, the criminalizing affirming care, the current Tory government is ready to push trans people into conversion therapy. And oh, by the way, did we mention the way the British press, the British tabloids, and the British government talk about trans people? It's ridiculous. And it's asinine. And oh, even if you aren't trans, but you're LGBTQ, don't sleep. There's enough people in the Rishi Sunak government who want to bring you back to Section 28. Oh, by the way, if you don't know what Section 28 is, don't worry. I'm going to have a nice little primer in the liner notes just for you. If we want to get it, if we want to help them get it right over there, let's get it right right here in the United States. Right now, we have 38 states which have some sort of discriminatory legislation that's either been passed or it's pending, including 15 states that want to mimic Florida and have the don't say gay law. You see, in the story on what U.S. soccer is looking to do, I read the comments, and some of the comments are, are pretty much uniform. You can't tell Cutter what to, what to do. And by the way, a lot of those people that are saying, don't tell Cutter what to do, they probably secretly want to bring Cutter to wherever their country is if they're in the West. But there was one particular comment that struck me. It was by a reader named Gumby G. And it was a response to somebody who said these rainbow patches and all this quote-unquote virtue signaling won't change Islamic law. Gumby responded, it's not about changing Islamic law. It's about changing opinions and reinforcing that change. You don't make people change. You let them change. The change can take many forms from votes to protests to revolutions. 
Some change is vastly more painful and more difficult than others. But in the end, change starts with a question. Asked in the heart and works its way out. In this case, why is everyone wearing those patches? Well struck, Gumby G. I'm with you on that. And that's the Red Alert Claxon. You know what that means. Got to take a little break. Give love to the sponsors. But when we come back, the bad man from California himself is with us. And he wants to be a king back in the ring again. We're joined by Patricio Manuel. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. This is the Transporter Room. Stay with us. And welcome back to the Transporter Room. I'm your host, Carly Chardonnay Webb. And this week, as we head through Trans Awareness Week towards Transgender Day of Remembrance, normally this is a somber occasion. This week is a serious occasion. But even within a week of somber reflection, there's places where we can celebrate and celebrate who we are, what we are, and how we've persevered. And when I think of perseverance, I think of a night, December 9th, 2018, when a lone man stepped into a boxing ring to live a dream. Four rounds later, that dream ended in victory. The fighter that night's name is Patricio Manuel, a five-time amateur champion. But at the same time, when they won those championships, they realized that something was amiss, something wasn't right. That same fighter in 2012 was fighting for a place on the U.S. Olympic team. That bid fell short, but two years later, a new journey and a new calling sprung them forward to that night in 2018. Patricio Manuel became the first transgender man to walk into a professional boxing ring, compete, and win. That should have been the beginning of a special story in sport. Instead, it was the beginning of a lot of frustration. That was fight number one. Manuel is still looking for fight number two, but he hasn't been resting on his laurels. He's been training and getting ready to go and still is very much ready to go when that second fight presents itself. But along the way, he's also spoke out for the community most recently, doing a special plea to get people to sign up, to, to sign up and take the NCTE's current transgender survey, something that Every transgender American should seriously look at doing if you haven't done it already. And a piece of his memorabilia will be a part of a special project, the 99 Objects Project, the second volume dedicated to the history of transgender people. And it's because of that project in a way that our paths have crossed. 
and I'm glad that our paths have crossed because Patricio's here this week in the transporter room from Duarte, California, taking a break from training. We're going to beam him up. Patricio Manuel, it's an honor. Welcome to the transporter room, Energize. Thank you so much for having me. And that was such a, a great uh, intro. <laughs> I feel like you can just do the show for me at this point. <laughs> well, we can't do this show without you. And just a point, just right out of the just right off the bat, thank you. Thank, thank you, you for just being you, and thank you for that night in 2018 when you did climb through those ropes. The problem is, there should have been a lot more fights after that. What's the status on getting that next fight? Because you haven't stopped training. You're still keeping yourself ready to go. Yeah, I've basically been in training the entire time. Um, I'm ready to go as soon as we get a date. Uh, we're in talks with the promoter right now and just trying to get uh, our fight date solid and told us we're going to be good um, good to fight. I feel like for people who aren't familiar with boxing in general or any sort of combat sports, this isn't uh, a situation where there's like a season um, and you just know you're going to fight in a season. It's all about lining up with getting a promoter, getting a card, then putting you on that card getting an opponent, there's a lot that goes back and forth with this. And in addition to just the usual um, struggles of being a fighter and waiting to get get that call from that promoter saying you're going to go next, COVID has kind of thrown everything back uh, a little bit further. And there's so many boxers beyond me right now who are really struggling to get their next fight uh, too. So you know, unfortunately, I am in, in, I guess, good company. I don't know if it's necessarily a good thing that there's many of us trying to get back in the ring, but I really hope soon I can tell everyone uh, that I've got a date set and we'll get back for, for fight number two. Now, in the meantime, what have you been up to? Because I know you've kept yourself training. You've kept things together. What are some of the other things that you've been doing outside the ring? Yeah. Uh, I, it feels like that 2018, 2019 was so long ago, especially since the world shut down for at least a year. Uh, but since I, since my competition, um, I have been mostly going into a lot of more speaking, uh, speaking out about my story, speaking out about the importance of trans inclusion in all spaces, like what it means to be a black man in the sport of boxing who is also trans. Um, then really um, taking the time to, to think about what I want my life to be like in general beyond just constantly looking about when the next fight is because that date continues to move uh, for me. And at the same time, making sure that I'm focused on being a better boxer than the one that we saw in 2018. Uh, and, you know, honestly, that has taken up <laughs> most of my time for the most part. Um, you know, I've been staying here. The 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 pandemic actually really helped me um, in the long term of, of sitting really with myself and also working on a lot of injuries. In 2019, I did have a fight that was supposed to happen, um, and I had a pretty gnarly hip injury that knocked me out. And we were getting ready to go back in 2020. We were waiting for our date probably in March, and then all of a sudden the world shut down too. So, you know, I'm actually physically probably at the best I've been in years. I a lot of people don't know. Um even during that fight I I had injuries that I kind of had to push myself through in order to make sure that I was able to compete. 
So I'm now feeling, uh, even though I'm a little bit older than I was then, um, I do feel like my body is in better shape. And I'm just looking forward to showcasing what me and my coach have been working on the past few years. You had said it seems like 2018 was so long ago. 2012 must be ancient history in a lot of ways. That, that run up to you finding your truth and moving forward. Do you ever find yourself looking back thinking, wow, it's been a long trip. Every now and then, um, I look back and I think just how many lifetimes I've lived, um, you know, and I think it doesn't feel like I was a different person. I, I know that for some trans people thinking about before they transition, feel like they were an entirely separate person, but it is also been really grateful to see how much I've grown and developed and matured since then and just how much more I'm happier with myself than I was back then, even though that was you know, some of the height of my physical prime. Um, I definitely was in a place where I, w I, I was living out the dream that I thought that I wanted. I was at the top of my sport. I was being able to travel the world. I had this opportunity for going to the Olympics. Then, of course, all of that came crashing down. But I think I can look back and not have as much resentment and regret that I lost out of that dream, realizing that it brought me to who I am today. And I'm I'm really happy with who I am today. And I'm looking at a photo right now of you in some gloves. And those gloves are going to be a part of this history, of this volume. What's the story behind those gloves? So the, the gloves that are in that picture, they are some very, very shop-worn uh, red winning fight gloves. and. I think I had been given those, the funding for that uh, from the Long Beach LGBTQ Center um, at the time. I was living in Long Beach at the time, and I was one of the um, mentors to the youth there. I was teaching them boxing, and I was pretty broke, um, and those gloves are pretty expensive, and I needed uh, some financial assistance to be able to purchase them. So they helped me to get those gloves. They were... The gloves that I use from, I think, 2014 all the way up into 2019 when I got my, um, my sponsorship with Everlast. And they, they were with me. They were part of the things that I use day in and day out to get to the point of being the first in 2018. Um, and I don't think people really understand the level of dedication and perseverance it takes to get <laughs> that got me to that point and just pushing through. And that's why those gloves mean so much to me is they symbolize all that work and all that grit um, that I had to endure. Talk about just that journey, because 2014, you're teaching boxing. At the same time, you're coming into yourself. You're starting to learn who is Patricio. You're having you're 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 asking that question and you're moving forward in that. How did how did fighting and how did training affect that process? And how did that process also affect your boxing? I mean, I I can't look at who I am as a person today without acknowledging that the training and boxing has been a huge um, foundation, a core foundation of who I am as a person. And 
I think it was, you know, even looking before 2014 and my transition and who I am and who I'm becoming, I think it was to me, I was pulled into not only the, the particular kind of masculinity that comes with fighters, but also the toughness. And I, I look back and I really just wanted to be tough. I didn't think I was going to be a good boxer when I first started. And I actually lost my first three bouts back to back to back and wasn't very good. But I always appreciated the drag out fights, you know, when people would have wars with each other and the particular kind of like grit and toughness that you see in a fighter. And I think that ended up becoming such a cornerstone of who I am as a person, whether I realize it or not. And because of that cornerstone and my own pride of being that tough fighter when I would get in the ring, it allowed me to be tough even as I was forming and developing who I was going to be as a man and also someone who was going to be the first and knowing that no one else, I at least no one I had known that had been a trans man and had boxed before and not knowing just how much it was going to take to get myself into competition shape um, with my body changing and then interacting now as a male boxer, what it was going to take of losing my gym and losing my coach that I really love as a result of transphobia, what it was going to take to get policy that was theory suddenly put into place, what it was going to take to be in back into the amateurs and find opponents who were willing to fight me, and then all the way into getting to my pro debut. I just had no idea what it was really going to require of me. And I think boxing, if I, if I hadn't been a boxer, if I hadn't been through that before, if I hadn't really celebrated the, the grit that the sport inspires in all of us, I don't think it would have gotten there. You mentioned the transphobia. How deep was it working through that? You know, How deep it, was it? it? It's one of those things I I think because I'm such a forward pusher. I see the cat. <laughs> um, I because I'm always pushing forward and I I don't want to dwell too much. When even when it happened, even the heartache of it, I didn't really give myself time to process. I just like okay, this is this is what I'm interacting with. This is what I'm going to have to deal with. Um, I'm not going to let anyone's limitations in life be limitations on myself. Um, and I know that for every person that's transphobic, I'm going to find someone that's not going to be. And luckily, that has been my experience in life. And I feel it's a really big privilege that I have been able to find so many people who see me just as I am. During that period, from that time when you started to the time where you got it to where it was going, that fight night, who were some of the people that were in your corner? Well, definitely my family has been in my corner. Um, I, I definitely have to give a shout out to my mom, my grandma, my sister, um, who have always supported me and seen me. It also is a perk that my sister is also like a queer butch. Um, so we're, we're one of those queer trans siblings pairing. <laughs> um, also, I have a great partner um, who is, you know, non-binary femme, also involved in the trans community as well um, with their uh, nonprofit Mirror Memoirs. Uh, uh, actually, honestly, my, my childhood friends, they saw me who as it was and they, ha they supported me. I didn't, even as I lost some people, I had so many people step up for me. And when I lost my gym, I ended up 
at the time when I was living in Long Beach, traveling 70 miles up and back to this one gym in Duarte, Bo in Duarte California, uh, the Duarte Boxing Club. And that was actually um, a coach of a fighter that I used to spar back when I was a female boxer. And they really, really um, supported me and were, were willing to stand up and understand and fight for my space in that sport as well. So I know that boxing looks like such a lone person sport, but there's a reason why that saying like in your corner is so important. Like I wasn't fighting by myself. That was definitely my, my box, my coach, uh, Victor Valenzuela, my whole team was in there at the same time. And they, they relished that victory probably just as much as, if not more than I did. And we're celebrating it too. And I'm, I'm very fortunate to have so many just good, solid people in my life. Take me back to that night. Walk me through December 9th, 2018. What was that? What was that like? What What are the memories you take from it? Walk me through it from the time you walked into that dressing room getting ready to the time you walked in that wing to the time it was it was time to get it on. Funny is I actually don't have a ton of memories of that night, um, and it really some of it is, is still of a blur. Um, I remember when we walked. Um, into the arena and we went to the backstage uh, laughing because I was the one of the boxers randomly pulled aside for a drug test. Um, so for people who don't know and have never been involved in athletic drug testing, when uh, you give a urine test, you can't do that in private because people would cheat. So the, the man for the commission was like, okay, we're going to have to do a, a drug test for you and you have to have a, um, you have to have a witness as well. So my, my poor coach had to get pulled into there. And he's like, I'm just going to stare forward at the wall. And I, I took the person from the commission. I was like, I'm, I'm comfortable with this, but I just want to warn you that like I am trans and this is probably going to look different than what you're used to. And the man's face of realizing what he had walked into in that moment. Um, so it's it's funny because like that that drug test is one of the things I remember the most about that night um, was just laughing um, because they hadn't really thought it through when they did it, um, and you know throughout the night I actually wasn't aware that I was going to be broadcasted until the uh, weigh in. Um, no one had told me, and I was looking on the form, and I was like, I think to my coach, I'm like, I think we're actually going to be on Facebook Live. Um, so we were one of the later fights to go. I saw some of my, my friends and other training partners and people I had seen in the community um, fighting as well. And, and one of the things that stands out the most is throughout that night until I fought, the amount of coaches, boxers, even officials who were doing on the down low that were supporting me that came over even before I fought when I was eating lunch to say that they had been hearing my story and they all wanted to see me get in the ring and do what I wanted to do. Like the amount of support I actually received because there's something about fans. Fans may, may have their opinion, but when you've actually stepped through the ring, when you've gone in the gyms, when you sparred day in and day out, there is a level of respect for anyone that participates in the sport. And I definitely received 
so much love and respect by my fellow boxers and coaches before I um, before I even got into the ring that night. And probably this is one of the only only firm memories I have is when I was walking out before my fight and I'm getting set up, going through all my my rituals that I've done for all my 70 amateur fights before. And they had a smog machine. A smog machine kind of clouds everything. And I hear my song, um, which was uh, Kid Cuddy's A Heart of a Lion, uh, start. And there was like a split second where I was like, oh, shit. Because everything I had done to get to that moment, I had just been pushing, pushing through. And it was in that split second that the weight of that moment hit me like, like a thousand pounds. And then I was like, you don't have a chance. You don't think about it. And I just snapped right back into what I was doing and walked in that ring and just executed. That was it. It's, it's interesting. The biggest memories that you have were the ones before the fight, the support that you got. Looking back on it, how do you feel about the level of support that you got? Because that seems a far cry from, unfortunately, the experience that many transgender people who venture into sport are getting right now. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's, I guess I just didn't have expectations because I didn't want to be hurt and I wanted to possibly prepare for what, what it was going to entail. But I mean, even down to the weigh in with my opponent, Hugo Aguilar, who's in that picture that I'm punching, um, you know, my coach and I were, were, curious how he was going to react and we were doing our stare down and he handed out his hand at the end and we shook hands and my you know my coach had a, a relief because we just didn't know what was going to happen and I feel like it was best case scenario for me if we had someone who saw me as a man and respected me um and and said that uh to the um LA Times as well that I was just another man just like him that wanted to win and if I really think about the way most of the boxing community is when I come in and spar or when I train, um, I should have expected that they were going to have my support and, and my backing. But you just, unfortunately, this is the reality of when you're trans is like your expectations of cisgender people are low um, because we've been hurt so many times by people not really stepping up for us. But I've actually was really happy and I guess proud, proud that this is the sport that I'm a part of. That so many men were like, yeah, you deserve to be here. Um, and it was really one of the most gender affirming things I think I've I've experienced. And something that I what continues to bring me into this sport is like the amount of affirmation. I walk through the gym, I walk, I spend most of my time not being a trans man, but just being another man to people. Even though these people have seen me since I was a teenager. They've seen me transition, they knew me before. And they definitely weren't perfect or necessarily had the right words, but their actions have always been, for the most part, um, at least directly to me, been one that have treated me with respect. I've, I've been nine years in my transition. Um, it's been so public. I There's not a moment now where I'm in a gym, whether it's a gym that I've known before or whether it's a gym that's new to me, uh, where I ever do not feel just as a man not about being cis or trans, just actually being a man in that space. And I'm really, really, um, I take a lot of pleasure in that because unfortunately, a lot of people don't get to experience that in life. Nine years. It's a lot of, you've been you for an awful long time now. Yeah. 
With that in mind, though, and I ask this from a lot of people who've been who who have seen the other side and have really moved forward. How do you reconcile the pre pre transition to now? If you if you choose to do it, or even if you feel you need to do it, how do you go through that process of figuring out? Okay, if you do again, if you do it, what what memories do I keep? What memories do I take with me? What translates? What doesn't? How do you reconcile that past to the present to move forward in the into the future? I mean, for me, I don't feel there is any reconciliation between that past. You know, my normal when people ask like, oh, how do you identify? And I'm like, identify as a man who is trans. That is part of my history. That is part of who I am. And I mean, let's, for me, if I'm honest, I would not be the man I am today if I hadn't gone through everything that I had gone through before. And I like myself so much, even if it, this, it would be way easier, <laughs> even if my everything probably in terms of what I wanted in life would be way easier if, you know, I'd come out and that doctor had said, you're a boy, then we got a boy. And then, you know, I was reared and conditioned as a boy who would grow up into a man. I like myself so much that I'm like, it's not worth it. Like, I know for a fact my unique experiences. And that's why I like the saying um, consciously constructed versus self-made. Um, because I didn't make um, I didn't make any of these rules that life would give me in terms of who I am. Um, but I get to consciously choose who I get to be. And I think that is a powerful lesson for everyone, regardless of whether they're trans or not, of like, we can take the material ingredients that this life gives us, but we don't have to settle with what we're told is our lot in life. And, you know, it's, it's to me, it's our superpower of being trans, because if we can do something so radical as shifting our, the way the world interacts with us in this way and choosing it, knowing that life isn't going to be hard. Like, how can we be broken at that point? Like, I, I, it always makes me laugh when people talk about us being uh, broken, shattered people. I'm like, no, we are unbreakable because we are continually to choose ourselves despite everything that this life has thrown at us. And to me, that, that's our superpower. I needed to hear that right now. So thank you. That is a fair, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to take that phrase, consciously constructed. That, when did, when did you first realize that, when did that light bulb go off for you the first time when you realized that, no, I can remake this to any way I want? You know, actually, it's, it's one of those things I think about a lot, um, I spent a lot of time in my head. And it was way before I knew what trans people wore. And I was in church, St. Bridget's uh, Church in South Central. My, my family um, who raised me is white because uh, I am mixed race. Uh, but their way of like making sure I had black community was to have us go to a black church. So it was a, it was a wonderful church and experience. But I, as a little kid, I was like constantly lost in my, my head because it was very long. It always started late and ended way longer than it was supposed to. No, um, it's a black church. You think? That <laughs> <No. laughs> so was a four-hour experience. Yeah, yeah um, exactly. You're you're missing both NFL games on Sunday. Yep. Yeah, we went. Yep. Yeah, I went there. 
Puente. Yeah. <laughs> Very grateful that I have that uh, that cultural experience to be able to pull upon. Um, but I was in my head as I was listening to the uh, the priest, you know, lecturing on about how terrible things are in the world. And I, I had this distinct memory as a little kid going, wow, there's so much bad in the world. But I'm like, but all I can do is control what I can control. And that was like kind of my mantra of like, when I would do nice things for people was like, well, this world's terrible, but at least I can do this for someone. And again, thinking about those cornerstone things like that really cemented in terms of who I wanted to be as a person. And it took me a while to realize the options that I had out there. And I think, you know, looking back on like early stories of trans people way before we had uh, medical interventions to be seen as the way we are now, they found their way there too of like, Oh, whether I see a way forward or not, like I get to be who I want to be and be damned of anyone else who says it. But I look back, I've, I've always understood uh, from a historical standpoint, like what it is to be able to claim your own personhood. I mean, be able to create who you want to be out of it. And um, I think sometimes we forget how much power we have when we're taught and instructed and indoctrined for a very long time to think that we don't have the power to be anything but what the labels were given to us in this life. One label that we are given, uh, we are given in sport, uh, and it's a label that I'm not exactly, I don't exactly like is trans athlete, and because. I happen to be like in my kitchen. I'm a trans woman who loves sports and who loves the play. Don't dehumanize me in that way. With that, with that in mind, what's your thoughts on some of the things you're seeing in the landscape in regards to trans participation in sports, be it in your sport or be it in any sport, especially on what has been a year where it just seems like you can't turn around without somebody talking about trans people are this, trans people shouldn't play, trans people should play, all the debate. What's your gut reaction on all this? I mean, my gut reaction is uh, anger, obviously, at just the fact like our country thinks that this is an issue that we should throw behind so much money and mind uh, or, you know, brain space even thinking about as we, to me, I'm like, we have way bigger issues than this thought that like, and let's be honest, this is about kids. Like most of the, the the legislation and the focus is on K through twelve. Like there is such a focus that like trans children are going to be the end of all athletics in this world, and particularly looking at like girls and women's sports. Um, as if the underfunding and the misogyny isn't the actual main issue. And I think we forget because there's this fixation on the money and what you can get from, from athletics, that the vast majority of us are never even going to be in proximity to a professional athlete unless we are in an arena watching them. And that sports is actually just about playing a game, playing, uh, or in, in terms of my, we don't play boxing, but like in participating in a sport that is about its people. First and foremost, is about its people. So to say that trans people don't get to be included is saying that trans gender people aren't people. That's 
point blank. If we're not included in all spaces, then you are saying that we don't get to have the same rights as everyone else. And I keep saying that I think there's this huge focus on athletics in general because sports, and this is my bias is like a jock, but sports in general is the one arena in life that people, regardless of gender, regardless of race, regardless of abilities, regardless of socioeconomic status, can all convene and relate within one aspect. And when we can relate and understand and actually break down our barriers and have a conversation and see a person as a person, then we realize all these labels that we have are actually not real. And they've actually been used to advise us rather than being areas of celebration. And I don't think that, you know, I, I feel like this is a really broadly conspiracy that they, um, but, you know, specifically people in power, want to, people to realize and connect through that way. So, yeah, let's let's keep make sure that trans kids don't don't get to play in sports because if a trans person is a sport, then the cisgender person who may not be trans but again realizes that, oh, these these rules that we've been told that you're a man or a woman, you're a girl or a boy, and that's it are actually completely false. And if those are false, then what other limitations have we had imposed upon us that aren't actually real? A lot of governing bodies need to hear that right now. And that's one thing. What was it like working through the governing bodies for you? How much trans 101 did you have to give? I feel really lucky that I didn't have to give that much trans 101 um, for the most part. I think, and, and this is always, I think, the basis of, of change in general comes from a relationship. And because... Uh, I had such a long-standing relation with USA Boxing, which was the amateur organization. They were more than willing to uh, make the changes. Uh, Lynette Smith, who is the director of uh, membership, like it's actually been a really big supporter of me um, and and helped to make the policy and change. And when uh, my local boxing chapter, um, Denise Rico, uh, oh, excuse me, Delilah Rico, I said her daughter's name. Um, implemented me. We had known each other for so many years, so she was happy for me. And when my first opponent actually challenged my ability to compete in amateur, they were like, "There, he did nothing wrong." Like I actually had a lot of support, and I'm really grateful to that. And in terms of uh, the, the professional level, the California State Athletic Commission, I had the support and helping of. Golden Boy Promotion, which is Oscar La Jolla's promotional company. Eric Gomez, the president, has been a big-time supporter of me. Um, I also had my partner had some friends who were in the California State uh, Assembly. So both of them were like, when um, the California State Athletic Commission was like, oh, we're going to have to meet with our board before we can make a ruling. We don't know when that will be. I had both those fronts be like, no, you're not going to do this. And suddenly it moved things forward really quickly. So I, I feel very fortunate that if there was any other lifting, I didn't have to do a lot of it as a base of other people doing it for me or the relationships I have allowing someone to read what the rules are and be like, okay, let's implement this. Why do you think that some of these governing bodies just aren't, t just aren't considering that, you know, maybe let's actually talk to some trans people? Where where do you feel the disconnect could be? 
I I wonder about this <laughs> a lot. And I think I look at my situation and I think this is what helped it. One, let, let's be perfectly honest. I'm a trans man. I think that makes a difference. Um, and not to say that we don't have to do with our own transphobia and the, and the inherent misogyny that usually comes with a female assigned at birth person is therefore inferior to a male assigned at birth person. Um, I do think that there is more room uh, because of that misogyny of, again, of like assuming that anyone male assigned at birth is physically superior than someone who's female assigned at birth. I also wonder if it's, there's not as many people who've had such a long standing, um, I would say like, you know, my, my, my athletic career as a female athlete was pretty prestigious. So that relationship I built as built as being a top uh, competitor in the sport also really helped my favor. Um, so I think, you know, you're looking at a lot of federations where one, if it's trans femme or trans women, you're, that's a whole different struggle that I'm never going to fully understand. Um, and I think is a harder needle to move in general because of just the trans misogyny that this is inherent in this world. And you don't see as many people who were top in their field transitioning in the same sport. And unfortunately, when it does happen, like Leah Thomas, for example, in uh, swimming, then again, that becomes this trans misogyny gets involved in it. So, you know, and also I think it's just lucky sometimes of finding someone in the organization that's like just not shitty. I don't know how many other words that, <laughs> but just like that's but, it. But there's a you know. no, but that's important because there's a value to that because mm -hmm. you ran into you you threw out all these names of people who are high up in especially in especially in amateur athletics, to have a uh, have a Lynette Smith, to have a Delilah Rico in your corner, and they have the ear of the people that are going to be making decisions. And at the same time, again, because you've probably heard about just what governing bodies are doing right now. And I mean, how do you rate how the governing bodies are making their determinations? And though, and the manners in which they're making the the determinations, especially they've made in the last year. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think it was rugby, right? Um, uh, you had World Rugby make a ruling that was actually against what any of the other organizations were saying. So exactly. you're having governing bodies literally making decisions that are not reflective of the athletes or the coaches or even like their own participant members, you know, and. I mean, I, I was, um, it was actually my last trip until, uh, for 2020 is I was a part of a group that went and met with the, uh, International Olympic Committee and got to sit and tell them kind of a little bit about themselves and what they were doing. And I, you know, one of the things I kept thinking about was, oh, I said, like, you, you're being cowards if you're not stepping up and supporting trans athletes. But there were a lot of people at that meeting that I think were well-meaning. And if you could have more conversation, more direct face-to-face -face conversation with trans athletes and intersex athletes who often get lumped into this as well, even though they are a totally different situation that's happening, and actually understand that that's a person talking to you. 
you know, that's not a statistic. That's not a, a theoretical thing. And I think that's the main problem of most of the organizations and most of the higher up people. They're not actually having the face-to-face -face interaction. I'm like, tell me to my face that I don't deserve to be in this sport. No one's told me. No one has ever said that directly to my face. And I think that people would understand how cruel that is to say that to someone's face if they had to sit there and actually interact with them. And I think there's this huge divide between these governing bodies and actually, again, understanding that they're not just governing a whole sport. You're not just governing um, an athletic event. Like You're actually governing something that impacts people's lives and people love being a part of that sport. And I think there's just been so much separation and dehumanization. And this isn't just about even trans athletes. I think there's just a dehumanization of athletes in general and remembering that there is a living, breathing person with feelings that's connected to every single sport. And actually, they're the ones that make the sport beautiful and incredible and not these governing bodies, not these organizations, not these sports itself. It's like, who is actually a part of the sports that makes sports actually this thing that the entire world can get behind? What's beautiful about boxing to you? Of the list. <laughs> I mean, I still have the same butterflies as when I was like a teenager walking into this sport. Um, I love the honesty of boxing. Like boxing is such an honest sport. Even, and, and I know that sounds weird because we'll no, it doesn't. No, no. <laughs> as a boxing fan, that and as someone who is boxed, that's it. No, you feel it, but now you've put it in words. Elaborate on that more. People think about like, oh, there's corruption, this and that, but like, again, do away with that. But it's two people, gloves, sim same weight category, settling out who will be better. Like this is, this is schoolyard stuff. Like this is, this is ancient stuff of like two people, same weapons, duking out and seeing who is better about that. And there, unless you've done it yourself and especially if you've been in a tip for tat hard one fight whether you win or lose the amount of affection you feel for your opponent in those moments knowing that that person knew the risks they knew the consequences and still chose to meet me in this form where literally we're shirtless in front of everyone else doing a sport that took hours years to get to this point like every fighter that's in there it's not about that you know if it's a four you know four rounds like me that 12 minutes of fighting that was 15 years of really getting to that point for Hugo Aguilar that was how many years as he's been involved to getting to that point and being able to stand there with me it's honest I I feel like for me nothing else makes sense and I think Iron Mike Tyson was famous for saying this as well about this world doesn't make sense outside of boxing. Because to me, boxing, we can settle it right then and there and be done and then be able to hug each other afterwards. I wish more of the world was like that. Well, I know about that experience firsthand. One thing, this is something intriguing, that way, way, way back in 2013, at a time when, uh, when, Another 
standout legend for trans for trans people in sport was just trying to get their start. He made a video in support of them pursuing their goal. And that person was Fallon Fox. What did it mean for you at the time to see Fallon Fox then? And what does it mean for you now to see others like a, an Alana McLaughlin step into a combat sport, affirm their truth, and be a part of that honesty? Yeah, I mean, you know, it doesn't matter if it's something I'm doing or or something about necessarily a trans man doing. Anyone that can risk it all to do what they love, how can you not respect that and want to support it? You know, point blank. Like, that's it. Like, it is hard to stand out and be yourself in this world. And it shouldn't be, but that's the reality. And... I'm never going to know and experience what it is to be a trans woman, especially in a combat sport. And I know that it's dangerous. It's dangerous in a, in a different kind of way than what even just stepping into the um, the cage, which is their specific arena versus being in the, the ring. And I, I, I can't not want to support someone in doing what they love and feeling that it is so worth it that they're willing to risk themselves just to be themselves. On your side of the aisle, though, how do you answer to those who, if they don't know your story, the first thing they say is like, okay, you're, you're, no, th you're no threat to cis man. Go ahead, put him in the ring. He's no threat. How do you answer to those who would say that? I mean, all honesty, I don't answer to them because they mean nothing. They're beneath me. I've learned a long time ago that I cannot be worried about the opinions of people who don't know me, who will never know me, and haven't built a relationship with me. I don't owe anything to anyone, and I'm going to continue to go live my life. And if someone thinks I don't deserve to be in there, then you didn't watch my fight. You didn't see me spar. You don't see me day in and day out getting in there with other professional boxers. Because trust me, if I didn't deserve to be in there, they wouldn't be bringing me into camps to be used for sparring partners as well. So I've got nothing to prove to them. I've already proven it to myself. How important was it for you throughout your journey for you to get to that point? For those who are striving to get to that point, what would you tell them? What did it take me to get to that point? I think. I'm one of these people that's really, really about energy management. Um, I don't, I have a lot of physical capacity in terms of what I can physically do energy wise. I don't have a lot energetically. Um, I'm an introvert. I find sometimes interactions with people would take a lot for me. So I had to learn early on, um, especially I think internet probably helped this because people don't say things to my face, but say things on the internet that I really had to manage my own energy and be like, why am I going to spend time arguing about someone who I don't even know, who probably isn't going to change their opinion, when I could better spend my time doing something that's actually enjoyable or an investment in helping someone that I actually care about. That's really where I made the decision of constantly looking at the equation of like, well, is this really worth it? And for the most part, no, it's not for me. I don't. Get, I know some people really enjoy 
uh, arguing with people online. And that's totally fine. That's, that's actually very energy sapping for me. And I'm like, I don't have time or capacity to, to do that with, with people that literally I are irrelevant to me because I, I don't know who they are. And, you know, I think for anyone else, it's like, I also have, I think, and this is what helps too, is I have a very, very strong understanding of who I am as a person. And there is nothing no one can say or do that will make me think any less of myself. And I haven't always had that. I think it would be, um, it'd be a straight lie if I said I have always, I just came into this world with this like, solid understanding of like who I was and was an influence. And I think it's for everyone getting to the point of really looking at yourself in the mirror and being like, this is who I am. And that's enough. Like, that's it. Simple. It sounds, it sounds simple. It's not easy. It's simple, but it's not easy to really say that, especially for so many of us who've been gaslit to think that our whole entire existence and identity is just a figment of our imagination. For you, looking back and looking to now, where, when, if you, if you can point to one moment, if there is one, when did, when did it truly sink into you that, no, I've moved beyond this person. I've moved, I've moved into this place to where I am truly me all the way. No compromises, no regrets. I actually think that probably happened during my first amateur competition. Um, and, I, and I don't, maybe it was about my trans identity, maybe not so much. It was more about like who I am as an athlete. And I think, you know, that, that competition, um, my opponent was, had more fights than me. He was uh, younger than me in a way that was better because I'm a, I'm a bit of an old long in the tooth boxer at this point. Um, and I remember that first round, he broke my nose and then having to come back the second round. And so it was tied and then really gritting down and pulling it through for that third match. And I think, again, going back to what I said earlier about that like grit and toughness of a boxer being like a, a cornerstone foundation of who I want as a person. Um, I think really proving it to myself that not only could I be who I am now and still be able to form at that level, but more that I was actually still the same person I had always been, even if I looked different and I had always been right. Um, I think about who I imagined myself as a child and who I wanted to grow up into. And that person is exactly who I am today. And I think that realization um, in that moment of victory of like, oh, I am still me because I have always been me. Exit question. What you just said. How much... Do those gloves, those beautiful, tattered, worn gloves, exemplify that journey that you just talked about just now and that realization you came to? I mean, I don't think there's anything else that sums up my story than those tattered gloves. A uh, little worn, 
you can see the journey they've had. You can see their scars. But at the end of the day, they're still gloves. They still do what they're supposed to do. They still are exactly what they are, despite everything that they went through. If you needed some self-help, this was the TSR to be at this week. Because, Patricio, what you had to say, I have a feeling, is going to help a great deal of people who hear this. Certainly did it for me. It's been an honor. Thank you for being a part of the transporter room this week. But before you go, before I beam you back down Duarte to train, though, since you did this on your Instagram Live, I'm going to give you a minute. Why should trans people be logging on to USTransSurvey.org and take the 2022 US Trans Survey? Like I said on that Instagram Live, I feel it's important. I didn't take the 2015 because I'm paranoid about my information being out there. But I think now more than ever, showing that we exist in a way that our government organizations can register, which is on data, is so incredibly important because one, it will help acknowledge that we do exist, our, our real diverse identities versus this monolithic that most people want to put out, uh, in particular for those of us who are, you know, Black, Indigenous, people of color, um, various different socioeconomic status, all these things are super important. Um, it also helps a lot of the nonprofits that are gaining funding uh, to be able to get the money that can actually help and serve our community. They need those numbers. And I learned this early on with my my partner who works, uh, actually is the founder and ED of Mirror Memoirs, which is a uh, BIPOC-led uh, focus LGBTQ organization for BIPOC, LGBTQ survivors of child sexual abuse. We need to have our numbers be reflected so that we can actually get the organizations to show and get the funding that is necessary so that they can actually help uh, those in the community. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a history buff. And if we don't take these surveys and get ourselves recorded on every single ledger, even though we have our own way of showing our stories, um, where they're going to try to continue to erase us from the history books. And if the data is there, they can't completely erase us. Well, everybody, you heard the man. USTransSurvey.org. Log in. Yes, it takes a little bit of time, but it's worth all the time you spend on it. Just like this week's podcast was. Patricia Manuel, thank you for being in the transporter room this week. Now, a note to all you fighters out there. Mr. Manuel is available. Hashtag just saying. Sign on the dot. Call us people. Sign on the dotted line. Let's get a fight day. Patricia, thank you for being on the transporter room this week. I'm going to beam you back down to Duarte. Keep, hey, you keep working, keep training, and we're going to want you back. Thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to coming back on here after I have my finally my second fight. And we can't wait to have you back. We're going to beam you back down to Duarte, California. Thank you, Patricio Manuel. It was an honor and a privilege to have you here at the Transporter Room this week. And thanks to all of you for joining us. But before I go, Carly's last call. And Carly's last call is going to be simple and short. 
The website is ustranssurvey.org. The final deadline to be a part of the 2022 U.S. Trans Survey has been extended to December the 5th. If you need a compelling reason why you need to log on and take the survey, I'm going to quote my mentor in my own transition and my own journey. She was a kindly tra older trans woman named Janice Booth and where I live, she was an advocate and a friend to many. She said very simply, you have to be out in the world to let people know that we're in the world. And that's the whole point of this survey, to let people know that we're here, but also to let the people who lobby and fight for our communities know that we're here and have the numbers to back them up so that they can move forward and they can talk to legislators and they can talk to organizations and they can talk to government bodies and they can have the numbers necessary to let the let the people who hold the purse strings and the power know this is what our community needs the need is great the numbers are here we need your help put your power behind it but it all begins by letting people know that we're here and the U.S. Trans Survey is a tool to that end. If you want to know more, the link will be below in the liner notes here on Twitter and at Transporter Room 10 Forward. I took the survey. It's worth it. It truly is. And that's Transporter Room for this week. And just a reminder, if you like what you see at the Transporter Room, if there's something you want to say about what we're doing, or someone you want to see, like a Patricio Manuel, on this podcast, leave a message on, on our Twitter page. Leave a message on our Facebook page. Leave a message on our Instagram page, Transporter Room 10 Forward. I say it often, but it's true. Everything I do here at the Transporter Room, I do for all of you, the people who support us. That is the Transporter Room for this week. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. Live long and prosper and steady as she goes. I'll catch you all next week.